Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, back in the lion's den after being in Charleston, South Carolina last weekend, and I am here. I'm super excited for this one because this is a first on the podcast. I started this podcast, well, Kay and Carl Muller and myself started the podcast, and then it all just kind of went on my shoulders as we planned it out. Originally, it was supposed to be between the three of us. But when we planned this thing out, I had no idea how many people would find Holy Smokes through this podcast. And that was part of the reason why we did it. We originally wanted to put this out there so that way, mainly guys, but also some women, would really find a community of like-minded people of faith, whether they are actively in the church or they've left the church and they're really struggling with church wounds or they've never had any kind of faith whatsoever. But the idea of people coming around, having cigars and maybe a fine drink and having community and having conversations would appeal to them and thus bring people into the Holy Smokes community. And I've heard from a number of you that have reached out after listening to the podcast and said, Steve, how do I get in? How do I join? And then how do I join the Facebook group? And we've gotten tons of people in the Facebook group. And the very first person, if I remember correct, that found Holy Smokes through the podcast is my guest today because he just happens to be in town. Caleb Allen, welcome to the podcast, dude. This is a first. Thanks for having me on. I have to say, I was shocked and very excited when you asked about having me on. Because one of the first thoughts that I remember having about the podcast is, oh, that would be so cool. But then, in my own estimation, I'm a nobody. Like, I'm serving as pastor in a small town. I'm not known. I'm in a small denomination. Which, for me, being a kid who grew up in southern Wisconsin in a very small town. My town in 1980 during the census was, I think around 1500 people. Yeah. My graduating class was like 55. And so the idea of Holy Smokes being in small towns, not just in the major cities, obviously we've got, you know, Orlando and Tampa, they're crushing it. And same thing, you know, with the Dallas Fort Worth guys and with Seattle and Orange County here in Colorado Springs and even Denver starting to grow a little bit more. And we're seeing New York City. I mean, New York City and Long Island are really growing. We've got some great guys out there. That's all fine and dandy. But for me, my heart, I'm a John Cougar Mellencamp kid talking about growing up in a small town. That's my very foundation of where I grew up. And so when you were out here last time and really talking about what you're doing there in your tiny town in Southeast Kansas, right? Southeast Kansas? Northeast. Northeast Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. It spoke to me because that's what this group should be all about. Wherever we are, getting together and inviting people in and dude... I'm so proud of you, dude, with what you're doing there in that community and the way in which you're really taking this message of community, guys getting together in community. It was something where I was like, all right, yeah, I got to have Caleb on when he's back in town next time. And today is the next time. Yeah. Well, and it's the last time I was in town was for a Presbytery meeting. Yeah. And the Presbytery rotates between the congregations. Yeah. So I had no idea when the next time would be in town or when I would be in town next yeah, or when Presbytery would be coming next. So 
this all came about, I think, a few months ago. Yeah. So it's not like it, it was something planned out. Years like, in advance. Years in advance or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have a funny story for you about uh, the podcast. Yes. And particularly me telling one of the guys in our church about it. Yeah. So we've got a small group in, in our congregation that enjoy fine tobacco and drink. And we'll often use it as an excuse for fellowship, right? Or maybe we use fellowship as an excuse to pull one out, whichever the case may be. Yeah. So I'm telling them about the podcast. And it was like, dude, you got to check this out. It's good. It's eclectic, like Christian podcasts where you, Steve, is going and interviewing people from all walks of life and just getting their story. And it just happens to include fine tobacco and drink. Well, I forgot that the title podcast is in the title. Yeah. So I told him to look up Holy Smokes. And he found the Catholic one? No, he found one where the host like denied basic tenets of the Christian faith. And, and he came back and was like, dude, have you listened to all of these episodes? I was like, yeah. He was like, really? And you recommend it? And I was like, what are you listening to? <laughs> and so he pulled it up on his phone and showed and was like, oh, no, 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 that's not the right one. You want this one. <laughs> it was funny because a podcast that I've really enjoyed in seeking to share it with someone else forgot a very important word in the title. And it led him to a completely different one for a time. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and if you look for Holy Smokes podcast... I mean, there are a few that pop up there in the search. I know one's Catholic, and then there are some other ones in there. And so I pull out their phone, and I say, this is the one you want. And yeah. then, or I'll send them a link. I'll send them a link to either the feed on Apple, so that way they can listen on Apple Podcasts, or I'll send them. Uh, I, I listen to all my podcasts on Pocket Cast. Okay. And so um, I'll, I'll send them a link to the Pocket Casts. I'll have to remember that or just get the title right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we're getting out of order. What you smoking? Oh, I am smoking a Don Pepin Garcia original. It's my first time. First time with this brand at all. Yeah. I was running low on cigars, went to uh, Old West Cigar Shop yep. and picked this one out. I'm enjoying it. I don't pull out a whole bunch of flavor notes i'm not that sophisticated i'm not either i either it, i like it and it, it resonates with my palate or this one is uh, a little i like it less yes it's rare i ever have a cigar that i don't like and um, then for me you gifted me chaffiat collection freedom fighter and you said you were telling me a little about the story of this brand that you love to support them so talk about that for the listeners yeah so i don't remember how i came across them but the Chaffiat Collection, it's a group of guys who, on the one hand, they love cigars and they hate human trafficking. Yeah. And so they created the Chaffiat Collection as a way of putting good cigars out there while at the same time using proceeds from the sales of the cigars to support uh, the end of human trafficking. Mm. I need to get one of their t-shirts. I haven't gotten it yet, but... On the t-shirts, they have a saying, is until human trafficking goes up in smoke. Mm. So while I can't stand paying full price for cigars, I know they're worth it. So it's not a matter of questioning the quality. And I will look for whatever bargain I can find. Chaffiat Collection is one of those that 
I just decide I'm going to do at least one yearly order of Chaffee Collection cigars. Mm. And then since one of the greatest things about cigars, even more so in my personal opinion than enjoying it myself, is giving it away, yeah, I gave you one. Well, I appreciate this. So where'd you grow up, Caleb? Okay, well, this gets interesting. I was born in Tennessee, and so I love Tennessee for that reason. But I grew up in Georgia, South Georgia, America's, not America, America's. Drop the A at the end, U.S., Jimmy Carter's neck of the woods, okay. for those familiar with him. Plains is about 30 minutes from America's. I grew up there in a Christian home with a few siblings, seven. Wow. Yeah, just a few. What'd your parents do? My dad, he was trained through Georgia Tech as a mechanical engineer, but he spent the last 20, 20 years, if I recall correctly, it's got to be 20, he just retired, as a civil engineer for the Air Force. Mm. So he eventually made that transition, found that he enjoyed civil engineering more. Yeah. My mom was, for all of my upbringing, she was a stay-at-home mom. I know she worked as a bank teller for a time, but I'm pretty sure she quit that long, or at least sometime before I was born, so that she could stay at home with the kids. Yeah. So, yeah. And then mom, mom passed away. Sorry. In 2018, mm-hmm. after a six-year battle with cancer. Mm, what kind of cancer? I don't remember the specific kind. It's a close relative to ovarian cancer. Got it but not ovarian cancer specifically. So Mm. wait, hold on. I said 2018. That's not right. It would have been 2006. I got my years off by quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. Um, How old were you at the time? 18. Mm, That's tough. And what number are you in the birth order? I am the third oldest son, third overall. And what was, how old was your youngest sibling at the time she passed? Nine. Nine. Ah, man, that's tough. And she'd had cancer for, I think it was six years. Most of his life. Or her life. His life. His life. Yeah. Man, how'd your family handle that? It took several years for us to work through the grief of losing our mother. Yeah. And in the process, there were at least some relationships that splintered Mm. within the family. I think we could say as well as could be expected, but at the same time, not well at all. Mm. What kind of kid were you growing up? Oh, I see a little bit of a smirk. So I think this is going to get fun. Okay. What kind of kid was I? All right. On the one hand, at least as I recall it, I was an obedient kid rebellious in my own way how so like i i would push the boundaries a little bit let me give an example on that pushing the boundaries being i went and bought some music cds that my parents weren't particularly happy with however they were like pop christian cds Mm. so it, it wasn't anything extreme or anything like that what and kind of church did you grow up in? Southern Baptist. Okay. So like not super fundamentalist, but still has some of that 
fundamentalism I, there. I grew up AG, and so okay, yeah, I remember we had a pastor candidate come in. I think it was in eighth grade, might have been ninth grade, and uh, he ended up being hired. And I remember him downstairs talking about some of the stuff that he believed before the whole congregation during a potluck dinner where they were, everyone was kind of getting to know him and questioning him. And I remember him standing up there saying, Christian rock is of the devil. And I remember just getting up, walking upstairs with a bunch of the other teenagers and we're like, all right, this guy, no freaking way. No way. I remember a similar sentiment, but with regard to rap. Rap is of the devil. Oh, God. And oh, God. So, you know, in my like mild rebellion, uh, discovered guys like Lecrae and Tadashi and yeah, and just when I were solid theologically and they're really speaking to young people, or at least they were at the time. And when when I was in college, like there was a a local radio station that played only Christian rap, like exclusively. Yeah. And it, it was great. I remember back before there was any real good Christian rap, and it was just in the very birth. I remember getting a CD of a guy named T Bone. Oh yeah, and I was like, eh, "This is not very good. All right, <laughs> this is really not very good." And then Mark Solomon from the Crucified, the lead singer from the Crucified, came out with a rap CD as well. Really? That, that he that he looks back at. I remember him seeing him on Facebook one time talking about how just embarrassed he was. It just his hubris in, in doing something like that. And yeah, it was interesting times. It was very interesting yeah. times. Yeah. Well, kind of on the music side of things, what disillusioned me to the like anti genre mentality was when I started listening and paying attention to the lyrics yeah. in like your classic country or oldies uh, sort of music. Then I came to realize the only difference between like secular country, secular rock and rap is the music. Like lyrically, as far as what is, you know, not the greatest of influence, it's all the same. Yeah. Their words are different, but their message is the same. Yeah. So for me, that ended up just being like, okay, well, you can't go and say that this particular genre then is inherently evil when the other genres that you're saying are okay yeah. are no better. Yeah. So the other side to mild rebellion, I had this pesky issue where my conscience just wouldn't let me get away with things that I knew was wrong. I don't remember particularly what it was, but on more than one occasion, I would be told not to do something or it'd just be something I wouldn't have to be told like hitting my brother. I'll use that as an example. I don't recall if that's, if that was the particular matter, but things that you know are wrong and I would do that thing, get away with it. My parents didn't know, but my conscience wouldn't let it go. And so I would end up going to my parents with the disciplinary implement that was used and saying, I did this. <laughs> Here you go. I deserve it. Yeah. So I, I wasn't a very good rebellious kid because, <laughs> you know, the doing the things and getting away with it was fine initially, but I never could keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so I tattled on myself and got myself in trouble. <laughs>
playing sports growing up or in high school? Well, I was homeschooled. Okay. So in Georgia at the time, the laws with regard to sports is that you had to attend the school you represented, which basically meant I had rec league ball. And once that was it, sports was done. Mm. I really wanted to go and do the legal battle. However, my mom had recently been diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. So that was not going to happen. Yeah. I wanted to, but I mean, let's be honest, I didn't have a job. So who would have been funding that? Yeah. And there was far too much, understandably so, on my parents' plate at the time. So I played baseball in rec league. I always wanted to play football. I never did. Um, still love those two sports. Yeah. But I've had to content myself with watching other people play for quite some time. Yeah. So where'd you go after high school? Well, I took a year between high school and college just to work. And you'd also lost your mom. And I'm sure that was, yeah. Or were about to lose your mom. Had just, had just lost my mom. I, I held myself back yeah. in, in high school and worked for a little bit of time. I didn't save any of the money, so it didn't help me out in the long run. Yeah. So after high school, I went for the second time to a Summit Ministries conference in Dayton, Tennessee. Mm. Now, going the second time is important because that's where I met Hannah, who would later become my wife. She was living in Virginia, grew up in Virginia. The college that I had applied to and gotten accepted to was Liberty University. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have all the speculation of you're just going there because of the girl. And it's like, well, no, I was accepted before I met her. But, but the girl there is definitely an, an like added it, bonus. It is. It is. Like yeah. a 12-hour drive or a two-hour drive. I'll take the two-hour drive. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, when I went to Liberty, there was two things. First, my mom had died at this point, and my mom wanted one of her kids to go to Liberty. I was a mama's boy. Yeah. Why? I don't know particularly. Um, my assumption is that my mom was a first-generation Christian, and she had really appreciated Jerry Falwell's ministry. I learned this later uh, by the fact that she had a Liberty annot- annotated study Bible mm. that was like her main Bible. So um, I assume it was because of that. I know my parents for a time supported Jerry Falwell, but I don't know. I never asked why she wanted the kids to go there. Yeah. I just heard her talk about it. So being the mama's boy that, that I am, I went. Yeah. And my goal at that time was to, I'm still Southern Baptist. My goal is to become a youth pastor and not like let's use youth ministry as a stepping stone. I know that some, some do that, but it it wasn't that as it was. I just want to serve as a youth pastor. Mm. Did you have a youth leader growing up that was really influential? Yeah. You're shaking your head. Yes. Tell me about that person. Well, um, at this time, my family would have moved to, this would be 2005. Mm-hmm. So one year before my mom died and we had just moved to Hawkinsville, Georgia, because it cut my dad's drive time about in half getting to the Air Force Base. And we, we got plugged in with a church, Westview Baptist, and the youth ministry 
pastor slash music pastor was Micah Emery. And he was the ringleader amongst the high school boys as far as modifying their cars and working on them. I just didn't care about any of that. And at the same time, I never felt like any sort of judgment or anything from him for not having that interest. But he became probably the most, I'll say, subtle, influential men in my life. Just by being willing to like sit down and talk with me, mm-hmm. point me to scripture, encourage the studying of scripture. He wasn't the only one. He was the particular youth ministry pastor that was influential in that regard. After my mom had died, I had met other pastors and it was always pastors that I would go to for counseling. I had this hesitancy to go to like a professional counselor. I still have that. I don't know why I can't really explain it, but I'm guarded, not necessarily for any particular or good reason. I'm just guarded against it. And I'm, I'm very hesitant, Hmm. but I pastors are ones that I've always felt Hmm. comfortable going to. Interesting. So because of that, when I finally landed on a, on a career path that, that was actually feasible, I say that because early on it was, I want to be a bounty hunter. <laughs> Which is a feasible career. Yes, yes. Just um, I mean, especially it, with now with social media, you got some, I mean, I mean, true. previously Dog the Bounty Hunter who. True, true. From here in Colorado Springs. And, yeah. And made his name through reality, t- quote unquote, reality TV. Right. Was Dog an influence in, in that decision to want to be a bounty Not hunter? Not at all. Really? Why? What, I, what was it about bounty hunting that I, I don't know? It was there were a few different ideas that I had as a kid, like preteen, and it never was a policeman or a firefighter. It was things like, oh, I'll go into the air force to be a pilot, yeah, or let's go be a sniper. I don't know why, or a bounty hunter. I think for a short time I considered a musician. Yeah. So it was just kind of like all over the place for no particular reason. I didn't know any pilots or any Air Force guys that would influence me that way. I didn't know my active duty special ops guys. So there was no logical reason why I would just be like, oh, I want to pursue this. It was just an idea that I had. Let's do that. I never did anything with it. Yeah. But then as my mom's battling cancer... I started like engaging with other teenagers online and I always just wanted to help them. Mm. And so when I started to sense like this call to the ministry, that's the way that I articulated it. I want to help people. Mm. And what I had found in my own experience was that there are two things that are most helpful. One, a relationship with Christ and pastors. And at the time I didn't connect those as probably I should have at the time, but it was like, in order to really help people, what people's greatest need is Christ. And the people that I have received the greatest help from humanly speaking are pastors. Mm. And so that led to pursuing when I went off to college ministry, youth ministry was the degree choice at the time. 
I would eventually switch degrees to biblical and theological studies for the simple fact that I understood one, I said two, but one, a lot of the youth ministry classes that I was taking early on were about like youth dynamics. And I looked at that and and I was just in my simple thinking, I came to the conclusion I could pick up on these things. And I did as a homeschooler just by being in a youth group. So therefore I, I don't really need a class on it. And at the same time, recognizing I can be lazy. And if I'm not going to be required to take a class, at least early on, I wasn't going to take it. So I understood there were some things I really didn't need. And there were other things that I needed that I wouldn't get if I didn't force myself to have those as requirements. Yeah. And a particular need that I had was a greater knowledge of scripture and theology. I wasn't super studious as a kid. Even when it came to studying my Bible, I would read it, but I really hadn't been taught how to study versus just how to read it. So change degrees in order to take care of what I identified as a really important need if I'm going to pursue pastoral ministry. Mm. I need to know the word more than anything else. Other things can come later, but I have to know the word. Mm. And that's been something that's just continued. And it seems like the more time that I spend now in ministry or studying the word, the more I learn just how little I know (laughs) and how much there is still to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So text that I had understood a, a certain way for a long time, like in the last couple of years, I've, I've come to see, oh, that's not the primary thrust of that text, such as um, 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution and warning for the Lord's Supper. Yeah. The primary issue is not theological, as I understand it. The primary issue is community-oriented. The problem in Corinth was that there were factions within the church creating divisions which then spilled over into how they observed the sacrament it's not like discerning the lord's body in that context isn't so much discerning what christ has done as much as discerning our relationship with christ's people which for years i never picked up on that yeah so it's one of those things where that early understanding that I have a particular lack in my knowledge of scripture, which led me to pursue a particular degree uh, that has only been reinforced <laughs> over the years, yeah. even after the degrees. Yeah. So, And what was that degree that you were pursuing at Liberty? How did school go over those years? Yeah. So initially it was the youth ministry one. Then I changed it to both an online degree and changed it to a general religion degree specializing in biblical and theological studies. Mm. I had started working at Liberty and learned that Liberty had wonderful benefits for their staff. And so they covered my tuition for the time that I worked for them. 
and they covered my wife's tuition for the time that I was working. So how did it go? I would say overall, I probably could have been a better student. I think in hindsight, we could all say that if we're honest. Sometimes I've struggled with the fact that I went to Liberty simply because there was a, a major shift in my theology and my understanding of scripture while I was there. I went from Southern Baptist to Presbyterian. And that started while I was working there. I had a coworker as all of us. I was a janitor at, yeah. at Liberty. Yeah. So yeah. the janitors were, the majority of them were religion majors, uh, funny enough. And the primary topic of conversation at the time was the free will versus predestination uh, matter. So in order to just be able to have conversation with my coworkers in light of what they were already discussing, yeah. I had to dive into that. Yeah. So in doing that, where I ended up landing was on the reformed side of things. And then I had a coworker. I was working second shift. He was on third shift. He gave me a paper that he wrote on the Abrahamic covenant where he argued in one small part of the paper that infant baptism is an, an inference and an application of the Abrahamic covenant. And I found that convincing. So I finished, that was early on. I was probably into my second year. I extended it to a six-year degree. So my four-year degree is a six-year degree. And early on, I made that rather significant shift from a dispensational Arminian up, uh, Baptist upbringing to a Reformed and Presbyterian view of things. But one of the positive benefits that I got as a result is I learned how to disagree. Mm. How to disagree without immediately jumping to everyone else is a heretic. Boom. Right Which there. Which is hard. But it's an important shift that people should really go through. And I, I, th I think part of it was, I think you would probably say, I know it definitely was for me, being in fellowship and having conversations. Like I've said this on the podcast a number of times, but working at Focus all those years, mm -hmm. I worked with every freaking denomination under the sun. Yeah. And during those down times where we'd have a chance to hang out in each other's offices and talk. Yeah. Sitting down and, okay, uh, tell me what you believe about this. Okay, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that, but you give me something to chew on. And I know you and I love you. And we're working in these trenches and we're sweating, we're bleeding, tears. We're going through it when it's hitting the fan. Yeah. And that camaraderie really opened me up to the kingdom. And really gave me this great perspective of that we all bring these different flavors. One of my closest friends back in Denison is a fellow pastor. And he and I disagree on a lot. There's probably like core Christianity we agree on. Yeah. That the Bible is the word of God. That Jesus is the son of God incarnate. And some other things. But those are the things we disagree on. We or that we agree on and we disagree on just about everything else, not everything else, but yeah. it seems like everything else. Yeah. One of the comments that I got from a fellow classmate during my undergrad, which has stuck with me all these years. 
I don't remember her name, but she commented at the end of the course that I had disagreed with everything she wrote over the course of that class, everything. And I was, when I first saw that, I was like, really everything. And I went back, there was one post of hers, uh, discussion board that I didn't comment on. I still disagreed with it, but that was the one I didn't comment on every other one. If I commented on it, I disagreed. And apparently even the one I didn't comment on, I disagreed. Yeah. But her conclusion was appreciating that while I disagreed, I was gracious in it. And she said, I look forward to meeting you in another class that has stuck with me. It's been probably close to eight to 10 years. I don't remember her name. Yeah. But I still remember that. Yeah. And that has in some ways become a goal of mine. Like I don't necessarily want to disagree with people, but if I'm going to, I want it to be where they can walk away and say that they appreciate the disagreement because of how I disagree. And it, so long as we understand that Christians are upholding at the very least, in addition to core Christianity, right? But if, if we're all holding that the word of God is the final authority, we may disagree on interpretation. We may disagree on application, but we can still appreciate the fact that while we disagree here, yeah. what we're going back to is that same authoritative source. Yeah. And part of the disagreement is coming about because of sin, right? Not necessarily overt sin, but sin affects our ability to think, to reason, even to understand. Yeah. And so we have to then admit that there are, there will be things that, that we learn probably not until we get to glory that, you know what? I disagreed on this and it was my own ignorance flowing from my own sin. But so long as we understand scripture is that yeah. final authority. And so long as we understand that the disagreements are arising out of a desire to be faithful to scripture, there's a lot of room for being understanding and being gracious in the midst of those disagreements. So yeah, I would say that's probably my personal greatest takeaway from my time at Liberty University is learning how to disagree with people. Mm. I'm not perfect in it. I still have a lot of learning to do. Yeah, but that's the attitude. Yeah. That we're all growing. Right. None of us have arrived. No. There's no. always things that we can be working <laughs> on, so. And the moment we think that we have arrived, oh boy, that ought to be like a major red flag. Huge. And probably like multiple yeah. r major red flags, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just for that one issue. Like if, yeah. if it ever gets to a point where I can say Caleb has arrived, then I should probably just go and, and stake a multiple large red flags in, in my own yard. Yeah. Not for everyone else's benefit, for mine. Yeah. As a red flag to me. So. At what point did you marry Hannah, right? Mm-hmm. I met Hannah in summer of 2007. Mm -hmm. So my mom died November 2006. I met Hannah July 
2007. I started Liberty uh, University in 2008. We got married in 2010. It makes it very easy to keep track of how many years we've been married. Yeah. I just have to add to 10. <laughs> Whatever number added to 10 <laughs> is how many years we've been married. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, because that, that means then that while I'm going through this rather significant theological shift, I've already met Hannah. We are dating for a significant part of that. We're engaged. Then we're married. Her background is non-denominational charismatic. And so with how I grew up, like the charismatics were the crazy people. Your Presbyterians were the liberal ones because where I, the particular area I grew up in, you only had, or you had one major strand of Presbyterian, which are, it's still the largest Presbyterian denomination, uh, the Presbyterian PCA. Church, uh, USA. 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 PCA is the largest Orthodox Presbyterian denomination. So in America's Georgia and, and that area, if you were part of a Presbyterian church, chances are it was PCUSA, and chances are you weren't very Orthodox. So I'm going from that, as far as like my overall background, Southern Baptist with an understanding, Charismatics are, are the yeah. off-the-wall ones, Presbyterians are the major unorthodox ones, and I'm slowly shifting into a reformed and presbyterian position while i'm dating and then marry hannah who grew up charismatic where was she in a faith perspective as you guys were dating what i mean she grew up charismatic non-denominational yeah but where was she over the course of your dating and early marriage and how did that did it at all kind of adjust your thinking i would say later on like as, as i started to go more in a reform direction and i started to think about the implications of that theology on relationships it started to affect things but not immediately early on i think what attracted me to hannah was one she had to be of a more serious Christian type because she went to summit. Nobody goes to a summit conference unless you're actually serious about what you believe. Yeah. You're not going to go and choose to spend two weeks as it was in with the conference we went to two weeks sitting through eight hours of lectures every day with a few hours of free time, just so you can go back and continue your nominal go with the flow Christian life. You're either serious about it or you're forced to go as some of my friends were. And as a result, they, the Lord blessed that time and they became serious about their faith. For me, it stood out that Hannah wanted to go to that. Mm. I had no idea about her background or anything. Yeah. What Hannah has always been committed to is the scriptures. So then as I'm, debating these things and wrestling through them. I'm sharing all that I'm learning with Hannah and the Lord like providentially worked in, in a way where as I'm sharing, 
he's taking that and molding Hannah according to scripture so that we're being shepherded by the Lord essentially away from the particular traditions that we grew up with and into this one tradition. So what that has looked like as far as family goes, that's where it gets pretty interesting. One of these days I'll keep puffing on the cigar to keep it lit, but it's a normal thing for the guests. <laughs> okay. I, I don't feel bad then. No, it's very normal. <laughs> so to this day, I am the only Presbyterian in my family. Most of my siblings have remained some strand of Baptist in Hannah's family. She was the first Presbyterian. Her brother, her youngest brother, she has two brothers. Hannah's the oldest. She has two brothers. He came to Presbyterian convictions, the youngest brother. The older brother did not. But in the case of Hannah's family, her parents grew up in very formal churches. And they kind of moved away from that an overreaction to the formalism that they grew up with and went with a more charismatic Hannah and her siblings reacted to the way they were raised and swung back to more formal churches. So Hannah's and her youngest brother, both Presbyterians, her other brother is Anglican. So They've all shifted in, in various ways. We've had to learn, um, how do you go and retain particular convictions in a way where you're leading your family according to how you understand Scripture and you are seeking to be respectful towards in-laws who disagree, but also wanting to maintain relationships enough so that you're comfortable leaving them as far as religion goes. And that, that doesn't become a barrier in the relationship, right? One example of that is we, we both grew up celebrating Christmas and we don't now. So going from celebrating Christmas to, I think it's fair to say we, we would say that it's, it's not commanded. Therefore it can't be required. And we're not convinced that it's like, I, I can't celebrate it in a non-religious way. Cause that's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. And so there's very strong religious overtones to the celebration of Christmas for me that I can't justify according to my understanding of how God controls his worship. How do you guys deal with that as a church? The holidays? My now, now all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. So On the one hand, our denomination, which is the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, RPCNA for short, um, we maintain a position on worship that is called the regulative principle of worship, which in a nutshell means that, that we can only do what is commanded, either positively and explicitly commanded or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from scripture. So when it comes to worship, like the position that we hold that it's not the celebration of Christmas isn't commanded, kind of takes care of that on its own. 
Because since it's not commanded, I can't be required and I can't require of the congregation to observe a day that the Lord himself hasn't commanded that we observe. So what that looks like then is I just don't change my preaching schedule for the holidays. Now, if it should happen that I am working through a text or working through a book and I get to, in the course of that scheduling, it's going to be an incarnation sermon right around Christmas. Well, my view of the regulative principle states that I don't change for a holiday, right? That includes not moving away from it yeah. <laughs> just because of the holiday. So I'm, I'm not going to change to an incarnation or Christmas sermon for Christmas. I'm also not going to change away from it if that's what is mm. currently on the docket. Mm. I don't think that it is wise to celebrate Christmas if people choose to do so privately. I'm just going to leave it alone. Yeah. If you try going and being like, well, you have to, then, then we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> because again, it's like you, you can't require, you can't impose upon someone, as, as I understand scripture, what Christ hasn't commanded. Yeah. And I actually stumbled upon this today in my uh, reading and study in Galatians. The idea of redemption and what it means to be redeemed, biblically speaking. The idea is like purchasing something in a market. So for us to be redeemed from the curse of the law, it is Paul's using language to suggest that Christ actually purchased us, and in purchasing us, frees us from slavery to the law. Yeah. But in doing that, he also becomes our new owner which is why Paul will, in I believe all of his letters, or nearly all of his letters, he introduces himself as a bondservant or a slave of Christ. He understands that since he's been redeemed, that there is then this obligation to obey Christ. Well, and part of that then is that since we have this obligation, we can't go and impose things that Christ hasn't imposed yeah. for my fundamentalist, soft fundamentalist upbringing. So I have close friends who, who were raised in even more fundamentalist yeah. and they would have considered me as like this great rebel for not being as fundamentalist as, as they were. He's one of my best friends now too, which is pretty funny, but one, one very easy example of what that means then is when you have like the temperance movement coming along and saying that alcohol and tobacco are inherently evil. Well, you can't say that. And the reason you can't say that is because Christ never says that. Yeah. Older New Testament never says it. And he also commands the use of wine in worship. There's one particular, uh, I really need to memorize this reference because I haven't yet and I keep forgetting it. Yeah. So you paraphrase it. Yes. Yes. So it's giving regulations in the Pentateuch for worship. And it is specifying like when worship is established in one location, 
which we know became Jerusalem. And it's, it is giving commands for what you are to do when you make the trip. It's assuming you don't live in Jerusalem and you make the trip to Jerusalem for the, the annual feast, right? And there's a provision made where if you live so far away that your lambs or your bulls, whatever it is you're going to offer, can't survive the trip. And we have to remember, by survive the trip, that doesn't mean that they just get there and they're still alive. It is, they still have to be without spot. Without blemish. Right. So if they are without blemish, when you start, if they can't make it all the way without blemish, then the command is sell them, take the money, and bring that money from the sale of those animals to you or with you to the temple, and then purchase, the text says, whatever your heart desires to consume before the Lord. And it specifies as things that are permissible, wine or strong drink. It specifies that. So we can't go and say that alcohol is inherently evil. I mean, think about the implications. If, if we're going to say that, then we have to conclude God commanded evil. God allowed evil because he allowed the consumption of alcoholic beverages in worship. He commanded that as part of the offerings at times. So we have to be careful in what we impose. And temperance, in in my mind, is an example of when the church at one point in, in the past was not careful. And so the church then required things that Scripture doesn't for a good reason. And the goal was, you know, to avoid the appearance of evil, which is another command. We are to avoid the appearance of evil, but you avoid it by not getting drunk, by keeping the command to not be drunk. Yeah. I've heard some say that like Jesus turned water into grape juice. Yes. That was what I grew up with. Yeah. Yeah, and the other is that Jesus never drank. Then why would the Pharisees accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton? You know what made that point for me? And when I say made that point, I I mean what gave me the understanding of what it means to be accused of drunkenness. I was working at, I worked all sorts of like odd jobs up until I, I got the call to Denison. So on this occasion, I was working at a turkey plant in Dayton, Virginia. And I was having a conversation with a coworker, not a believer. And I had mentioned in some other conversation that I enjoy beer. Yeah. So he starts going on about his plans to go and just get absolutely wasted. And then he starts saying that that's what I do. And I'm like, hold on, dude. Hold on. Yeah. I do enjoy beer. For the taste, I, I like the taste of it, but I don't drink it to get drunk. I don't pursue that. That was a reality that just was foreign to him. Yeah. Like, why would you drink beer if you're not going to get drunk? But it made me realize in that moment that that is what was going on. The Pharisees had observed that Jesus did drink. They assumed drunkenness then, and they accused him of that. 
I think probably because I would assume because he was having fun. I don't think Jesus was this stoic figure that was portrayed in the Jesus film, the original one. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't I, know that I saw that one. Yeah. I'm not even sure. It's been a long, a long time since I've seen it, but I'm not even sure he even cracked a smile. Mm. I'm sure he didn't laugh in that movie. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I love The Chosen so much is because it gives him a certain human quality that's relatable mm. that I've never seen anywhere else. Yeah. I haven't watched The Chosen. I do have some concerns over if there is Mormon influence in it. But a, a greater concern in my mind is the revelation we have about Jesus is that like we don't know what he looked like. And we can say definitively, he wasn't white, he wasn't black. He's Middle Eastern. He's Israeli. So he's going to have more of a, chances are, more of an olive-colored skin to it. But then any New Testament descriptions, with the exception of Revelation, which is clearly very uh, like prophetic in its verbiage and therefore not to be taken literally, but the New Testament emphasis is always away from being able to recognize who Jesus was. Even when the beatings are described, he's beaten beyond recognition. Oh, and Isaiah, but, when Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus, he had no form or... He was ugly. Yeah. He's essentially saying the guy's going to be ugly. Right. Or at the very least, he's going to be average. He's not going to stand out as like this really good looking guy it's he's definitely not going to have the hollywood like flowing hair and nice clean shaven face and yeah yeah anyway one back to the whole the main point that that you were making with that on jesus being personable and relatable i have pointed out to our congregation on on numerous occasions that the, you know, the moniker that often goes with reformed are the frozen chosen. And I was like, that should break our hearts. Yeah. Like that, to be labeled as stoic, emotionless, cold hearted should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. One, because Jesus wasn't that way. So first and foremost, our God isn't that way, and thank the Lord he's not. But also, like the heritage that we have, those men, the reformers weren't that way. The pastors of the past weren't that way. Yeah. So why would we think that this is suddenly like the disposition that we should have? And this thought just came to me. If it's true, which I don't think I've seen that early Jesus film, So I'll have to take your word for it. If he's portrayed as stoic, then that's why the church has kind of veered that way. Because that film then became the controlling interpretation of who Jesus is rather than the scriptures. Do we really think that if Jesus was cold and stoic, which is really more the way that the Pharisees are described... Do we think he would be friends of tax collectors and sinners? Would Levi, the tax collector... Who's going to be attracted to 
and want to hear this person speak and gather a crowd. I mean, you, you look at all the successful speakers mm-hmm. there are right now, the most successful pastors, they have personality. They let themselves come out in their messages. And for him to have, for Jesus to have those kinds of crowds right. following him, and it's, he had to be a dynamic speaker and, and communicator. It's, and it's not like he was just telling them what they wanted to hear. Like we read numerous times that the crowds left him because of what he said. Yeah. And when you think about like the woman at the well, the Sumerian woman, right? Jesus isn't having this motivational speech with her. He's saying, you're in sin. He's saying your worship is even in sin. Yet he's doing it in a warm way, not to approve of sin, but in such a way where when she goes back to the village, she gathers people to say, hey, come and hear this man. Yes. Who told me all about my life. Right. Everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And, and she's inviting people to come and hear him. Levi, the tax collector, like, is he really going to go and invite tax collectors and sinners, hold a banquet just so that they can hear Jesus? Yeah. If Jesus is not a warm yet firm presence, he didn't excuse sin. He didn't tolerate it, but he wasn't cold towards people. Yeah. He would call it out. And one of the chief groups that he called out over and over again is the Pharisees, those who had taken God's word and in a desire, if we're really gracious towards them, if we say that it was a desire to be faithful to God's word, they twisted it to a point of becoming very legalistic, going so far as to say, I read in, I think it was in the, one of the Talmud uh, portions where they were seeking to define what it means to work on the Sabbath. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things they concluded. If you have a water pitcher where you have to remove the lid in order to get water out of it, whether that's by pouring, getting a ladle, whatever, if you have to remove the lid, you are working on the Sabbath. And it's like, okay, that seems a bit weird. And so Jesus goes after them and he's like, no, what you're doing is you're adding to the word of God in order to like keep these traditions and keep this wrong understanding of the word of God. And you're adding so much that you're actually making null and void what God and his word actually says. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. Right. Which I do think is is a reason why we ought to be defenders of the Sabbath. We ought to be pushing for more to observe it because God has provided that as a day of blessing. Yeah. And we can't expect to be partaking and experiencing the blessing of it if we're just completely ignoring it. I know of a, there was a local pizza place, local in Pittsburgh, when we lived there, that the owner's not reformed, at least as I recall. But some of his workers came and they made a case 
for closing the restaurant on Sunday. Yeah. And this guy took at least a week off, maybe multiple weeks off, went off into the mountains to study it. So the owner. Yeah. Just to study it. Sunday was their busiest day at the time. So from a human standpoint, they couldn't afford to close on Sunday. He came back and he's like, you know, I, I think you're right. So they started closing on Sunday. And the Lord blessed that establishment to the point where they were able to open a second location. Wow. And it's, it was like, man, we can get so caught up in our human perspective on what our needs are and how to go about providing for those needs that we forget the whole world is the Lord's. Like when scripture says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, this doesn't mean that literally in the sense of only a thousand hills. It's saying he owns all the cattle. Yeah. And do we really think that God who does all things for the good of his church, we really think that he will withhold blessing for his people when they strive to receive the full benefit that comes with obedience to his word. So I don't remember where all of this started. I feel like we were somewhere else. <laughs> so, all right, let's get back to your story. So you finish at Liberty. Where do you go? What do you do before you move to Pittsburgh to go work on your master's of theology, right? Well, actually, we moved to Pittsburgh before I finished at Liberty. Okay. So I had been debating, because at, at this point, I'd shifted from Baptist to Presbyterian. Baptist didn't, didn't have, a, at least in my area, they didn't have an educational requirement. Uh, Presbyterians do. And so I was like, well... With this change in theology, more education is going to be required. So I started working through, well, what seminary, what seminary do I go to? And there was two that I was, that I was really debating between, I guess three. I, I did consider a small seminary in Scotland for a time. It was that seminary, Puritan Reformed in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then uh, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which is the denominational seminary for the RPCNA. Mm -hmm. That's located in Pittsburgh. So in debating that, I sought some counsel, and, and one pastor encouraged me that if I wanted to meet more Reformed Presbyterians, that going to the denominational seminary would be the better option there. So that's, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, we moved to Pittsburgh. Our particular housing situation in Virginia was no longer available. We were renting from a friend yeah. who had, he was in the military at the time and was getting stationed in another state. So they sold the house yeah. and that meant we didn't have a place to stay. So we decided to go ahead, even though I still had a year left for Liberty and move to Pittsburgh. So in the course of that year, I ended up doing a lot of my studying for my, that last year at the seminary. I got to know a lot of the students and a lot of the professors there. And then I started a year later. But that's what brought us from Virginia to Pittsburgh. And then, you know, because it was a bit too easy to stretch a four-year degree into six years. 
<laughs> uh, I then stretched a three-year degree into six years. And, and so when it was all said and done, I, I took 12 years to get what uh, normally is seven years worth of training. It worked out really well, though. Uh, there's a lot of maturing that takes place over five years. And that five years, I think, resulted in a lot of maturing for me, mm. uh, a lot of growth in my understanding of how the Presbyterian system works uh, and what it means to lead my own family, especially with the addition of kids. It was six years into our marriage that the Lord blessed us with, with our first kid. And so that brought with it a, a new challenge of how do you go about life with a kid mm-hmm. in a way that is honoring to God and beneficial and a blessing for the family. How'd you end up in Denison? Okay. Kansas. Yeah. So the way we ended up in Denison was it starts with being in Pittsburgh and not just because I went to seminary there, but Pittsburgh is the largest city that we have lived in. It was the largest at the time that we moved there. It has remained the largest. We moved from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia to Pittsburgh and we lived on one of the busiest roads in Pittsburgh. And so when it came time to candidate, we were both agreed if we could help it as much as it depends upon us, let's not go to a big city again. Yeah. So we started looking for uh, country churches. Because we swung the, the other way, right? Yeah. And in the course of that, we're in a small denomination. Country churches, like there's not a plethora of them. Uh, there's some. Yeah. Country churches with an open pulpit, there's even less. So there was like two main options. One was upstate New York, Lisbon, which I candidated there. Wasn't a good fit. So... I didn't get a call there. Then I candidated in Denison. I knew about Denison because one of my seminary fellow seminarians had interned there. And he was like, Hey, I know this is kind of what you're looking for. Here would be, I'll put in a good word for you. I was like, okay. So I think like two weeks after his internship concluded, I candidated out there. It was a good candidating experience over a weekend. Basically, for those who, who may not be aware of what that looks like, a candidating is, is where I go out and essentially do a job interview. I preach, I meet with people, and if the elders and the congregation like what they see and hear, then they'll invite the whole family out often and do it again, only this time instead of just for a weekend for an entire week. So September 2019 is when I did that first candidating trip. Hmm. Uh, COVID hits. We were scheduled for a second trip in March, end of March, beginning of April. That didn't pan out because, you know, COVID. So we were able to reschedule it for June, end of June, beginning of July, still during COVID. So went back out. That went really well. It was a good trip, but an exhausting trip. Some days we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner at different people's houses. Sometimes it was just lunch and dinner, but it was a good trip. And of course, the end of the story 
at least up to this point, is I I got the call then, came out. Well, how many Presbyterians do you know as far as knowing the whole Presbyterian process for becoming a pastor? I was involved in a Presbyterian church for a while. Oh, okay. So a PCUSA church. Oh, nice. It's interesting. There, there are still PCUA churches that are faithful to Scripture. Yeah. But anyway, so for those who, who may not be aware, in our denomination, the process for becoming a pastor includes 13 exams before the presbytery. Most of them are oral. Some are written. Five exams to be licensed to preach, and that basically means you don't have to have your pastor and your elders approve all your sermons. And then you have five exams to be licensed to receive a call. That's where you are given permission to go and start pursuing a church. And then after you have a call to a particular church, you have three more exams, basically to make sure you haven't gone off into sin or into some sort of unorthodox theology. Yeah. And then another preaching exam, lots of preaching exams. So in November of 2020, I had my last three exams after receiving the call to Denison. And that was really interesting. Now, you have been doing some really cool stuff there in the community. Talk about that, because you're impacting some lives in that small town. And that means yeah. that, like I said at the top of the podcast, I'm a small town kid. Yeah. And uh, stuff like that's important to me. Yeah. So I guess I, I should start here, because it'll, it'll help for those that don't know me to... It'll help them understand why I did what I did initially. I am an extrovert. I need to be around people. Now, it doesn't have to be all the time, but I don't find social gatherings to be draining. So moving from Pittsburgh to Denison, Denison has a population of 150, maybe a little bit over that and not 1,000, just 150. And our nearest, at the time that we moved there, our nearest relative was 17 hours away. Now our nearest relative, my sister, is eight hours, eight or nine hours away. So early on, I was having a little bit of a struggle just establishing good relationships. Yeah. And so I looked down. From our porch, there's the one restaurant in town. Yeah. Finer than a frog's hair. Uh, finer than a frog hair bar and grill. Yeah. If you're ever in Denison, I highly recommend it and let me know. I'll join you. But I, I noticed I could see the parking lot and I could tell when they were busy and when they weren't. So at, at a time when they weren't busy in the afternoons, I would just walk down and just start talking with people. Yeah. The workers primarily. What that resulted in is they learned that I'm the new pastor in town and that I'm not afraid to go and answer like whatever questions they have, no matter what the subject is. And if I don't know the answer, I'll find the answer and, and get back to them. So we ended up having conversations on everything. Like it didn't matter if it was LGBTQ stuff or temperance related things or just whatever's going on locally. We would talk about all of it. And the Lord blessed that so that in, in time, I started to become the go-to source for 
what does the Bible say about <laughs> X, Y, or Z? Yeah. And then one of the workers was like, you should start a Bible study. And the owner said, you can do it here. And so we started a Bible study in the local bar. That has since kind of fizzled out, so that's not something that's currently happening. But we saw some really good fruit in the short time that we had it. We had one guy who, who said that it was that study that helped him uh, break free from drunkenness. So mm. irony of ironies, right? Yeah. It is a Bible study in a bar yeah. that helps this guy not be a drunk anymore. Mm. That same study resulted in a local guys' night, cigar night, where we would just get together, enjoy some tobacco, some beverages. And it, it would be any, any number of, like, anything from soda to beer to whiskey, just whatever. And we would just sit and talk mm. about, like, whatever we felt like talking about. Yeah. And it became this really cool, encouraging event where guys would get together who otherwise just would never run into each other. Like, not due to social or economical status ordeals, just life wouldn't have brought this group of guys together mm. on a normal, like, week-to-week -week sort of thing. Yeah. And then one of the guys, the same one who had said that the study helped help break him from drunkenness, he would start inviting his unbelieving friends to these cigar nights. That's awesome. So that at some point we could share the gospel with them more, or even just like show them the gospel mm. through how we engaged with each other. So not everyone likes that. There are some, our, our denomination has a, does have a long history of fully embracing temperance. Mm -hmm. And some of that, we have officially moved away from that. But some still... There's still pockets. Still, there's yeah. Still pockets. yeah. So there's been some opposition to it. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing is, while there has been some opposition, I, I think overall it's been well-received. That's beautiful. Including by our elders locally who would still hold to more temperance views. But they see what you're doing. They see what I'm doing. And, and they're they see like, the lives that you're impacting and you're... And they're, they're like, don't get drunk. Yeah. Don't get addicted. And if you do, we're coming after you in a loving way. Yeah. In a loving way. Yeah. yeah. And so like that's been like their basic criteria. Just be faithful to what scripture commands in, in these areas, right? Don't go into drunkenness. Don't become enslaved to any substance. Because of the very foundation of your faith are what Jesus said are the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. And love your neighbor as yourself. And in reaching right. out to these people, you're loving these people. Yeah. And you're helping to transform that community. Yep. Just one cigar and one evening at a time. Yes. And conversation yes. and hanging out and getting to know them. Yeah. One thing that we would appreciate prayer on is there were some who came in and ended up controlling it and taking it into a really negative direction. Yeah. And so we have had to stop. 
Yeah. I'm hoping that we can get it started back up with a more deliberate and like gospel life intentionality. Mm. All right. Um, I look forward to hearing yeah. how that goes. Yeah. There's still a group of us that get together on Sundays. We'll have worship and, and the whole Lord's Day activities there. And then people will come over to our house and it's like fellowship, community, fine fellowship with fine tobacco. So, yeah. Caleb Allen, Denison, Kansas. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Alrighty. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. How's that stick treating you? Well, I'm enjoying it. I'm not treating it very well, but <laughs> it's good. It's good. I'll have to get another one of these. When did you first try cigars or pipe? I think it was 2014. I forget if it was pipe or cigar first. So I'll tell you about both of them. Yeah. The first cigar I ever tried was at, there was a birthday party for an older gentleman in, in the church, older than me. I will put it that way. And he loves like just hanging out with enjoying cigars with friends. I got invited to that. I had no idea even like how to cut a cigar at the time. They walked me through it, got me started on a good cigar. I don't remember what the cigar was. I just know I had a pleasant experience. So that same guy bought me my first pipe mm. and pipe tobacco. So I don't remember what order that was. I don't remember if he bought the pipe first and then invited me or if he invited me and then bought the pipe yeah. for me. Both would have been within a couple years of, of each other. So, yeah. yeah. You prefer cigars or pipe? Now, right now, I prefer cigars. I will occasionally still pull out my pipe. I have a lot more pipe tobacco than I probably should have, <laughs> given how infrequently I, I smoke it. Best dollar for dollar cigar that you get? Dollar for dollar. Anything Southern Draw. I love Southern Draw. Their cigars tend to be more peppery because Robert Holt likes peppery cigars. Yeah. He's the owner, founder, whatever. So anything by Southern Draw. I've yet to be disappointed by a Southern Draw cigar. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Probably Cigar Bid. It's a big one. <laughs> Again, I want to save as much money as I can so I can buy more cigars. That's my go-to place. There, there's not a whole lot of cigar shops locally. Like I've got to drive to Topeka, which is it's not too bad. It's 45 minutes away. But that's the closest cigar shop. Mm. Do you have a splurge cigar when you're celebrating something? A case of Southern, or a, yeah, a box of Southern Draw. <laughs> Southern Draw really is like my go-to for everything. If I'm going to splurge on it, splurging means... I'm going to buy an entire box of Southern Draw. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Scotch. What kind of scotch? Any particular? I've, in the last couple of years, been introduced to Lagavulin. I really like the Lagavulin. A nice and peaty scotch. It reminds me of campfires. Most memorable cigar experience? It was a Presbytery meeting in Pennsylvania 
I don't remember what church we were meeting at. Uh, a church usually hosts our presbytery meetings. And I went in and went to the parking lot to have a cigar and was joined by a fellow elder. And we just chatted. I think we were talking about music mm-hmm. and just different kinds of music. And turns out that uh, we surprised each other with the music that the other likes. <laughs> so my go-to in music tends to be either rock, Irish folk, or like outlaw country. So none of that really goes together. But yeah, I would never create a playlist for you for that reason. <laughs> All right, non-cigar questions. Marvel or DC? Marvel. Did you have a favorite superhero when you were a kid? Wolverine. Wolverine, why? I think it was the claws. Just to essentially be able to carry around blades in your hands all the time, and six of them, and like he's basically indestructible. Yeah. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Sports teams? Sports teams. All right, baseball and football. Uh, For baseball, Atlanta Braves. For football, we'll start with college, University of Georgia, much to my dad's uh, disappointment. Is he a Tennessee guy? No, he's a Georgia Tech graduate. Oh, yeah, Georgia Tech, that's right, yeah. (laughs) And then for professional, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Why Tampa? Well, Because they were awful when you were a kid. Oh, yes, yes. The the great football memory that I have is, I forget what year it was, they went to the Super Bowl against the Raiders. And my mom and my sisters made like a whole Super Bowl spread. It was great. But growing up, I chose whatever sports, professional sports team, football team, based upon the players. So I was a Cowboys fan for a time because of Thank God you grew Emmett out of Smith. That. Well, I mean, Emmett Smith no longer plays for him. There's no reason to cheer for him. Like, so I but Tampa, was... Tampa had, I mean, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Rondé Barber. Mm-hmm. That was a hell of a defense. Yeah. And that was when I started really liking them because of the Madden video game. Yeah. And I was like, I really like Warren Sapp. And then that landed me on Tampa Bay and I've just never changed since. Hmm. So favorite athlete as a kid, uh, toss up between Chipper Jones and Andrew Jones. Andrew was a hell of a center fielder. Yes. He was good. Yeah. And Chipper was a good third baseman too. Favorite athlete now. Honestly, I don't really follow enough to really be able to say that I have a favorite. I would probably go with, oh, what's the Braves? Is it center fielder or right fielder? I should know this. Anyway. Another Braves player. Yeah. You said the types of music that you love. Any favorite bands? Current favorite is NF, rapper. Hmm. He's very clearly influenced by Eminem. Yeah. But cleaner than Eminem in his lyrical content but also very dark, kind of depressing at times. And it's been, in a weird way, comforting mm. as I've wrestled with my own depression. Mm. So, enough. Probably a favorite song of his right now 
uh, would be happy. Favorite food? Anything Mexican. Have you or anyone you deeply trust ever experienced something that is unexplainable? It could be something spiritual. It could be UFOs are in the news. Oh, I've experienced what I can only describe as some sort of demonic presence. Mm. And it was the two, technically three instances that stand out all happened as a teenager. In one neighborhood we were living in, uh, I went out because our dogs would bark all night if we didn't bring them inside. Mm-hmm. You know, not a very good neighborly thing to do. Yeah. So I went out to go and get the dog and, and put him up for the night. And I'm looking and there's, there are these shadowy figures like standing right next to trees. But there are like street lights and everything. So I can tell they're not trees. They're next to the trees. And they're like black figures with white eyes really freaky and there's one very clear leader who is white with like black eyes hmm. and i'm just staring at it and the white figure starts charging at me and i turned around and ran inside as soon as that happened got my dad he came out with me i'm telling him what i'm seeing and he's like there's nothing there you're still seeing it i'm still seeing it And so when my dad was out, they wouldn't come any closer. I don't know why, but it was like, that was strange. Hmm. A few years later, I'm driving home from work and there's this dog in the road and it's weird. It's staring right at me. Same sort of black figure with white eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. With where our house was, there's a hill that goes up and then down, and our road is to the left at the bottom of the hill. So when I see it, I'm going up the hill. I can't move over because, mm-hmm. you know, Oncoming dangerous traffic. driving. Right. So it was like, well, I just I have to run over the thing. I run over it or I run through it. Yeah. There's no, like, bump of running over a dog. I look at my mirror and it is still staring me down. Same spot hasn't moved. There's been, I think one other time in more recent years where I've seen something similar. I don't know what to make of it. I've had some guys who are like, that's a demonic presence. Yeah. Some have said that you only see those things or only those who haven't been converted will experience it. Mine have all happened since my conversion. Yeah. So Hmm. I'm still not quite sure what to make of it, but it is freaky. I don't recommend it. (laughs) Dogs, cats, neither or both, since we were talking about dogs. All right. I don't particularly care for animals now. I tolerate them. I tend to prefer dogs to cats. Yeah. However, we have three cats and no dogs. Nickname growing up or in college? Didn't have one. Hmm. Caleb's a pretty badass name. My, I have a son named Caleb, so I, uh, I'm partial to it. Yes, it, it is an excellent name. My best friend likes to go and take my first and last name and smash them 
into one. And so he will occasionally call me Kalebelin. Kalebelin. And that's the closest to a nickname that I've had. Maybe some calling me a Viking, which is interesting. But I think that has more to do with the beard. But What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I mean, really anymore, few people know how many siblings I have. Because I just don't talk about it much. No. And I'm not around my family much. So that's being one kid of eight so having seven siblings yeah that would probably be the most common one now and that i was allergic to chocolate as a kid really yeah. that's an unusual fact yeah you're so, no longer allergic no i don't particularly care for it yeah. now but yeah favorite one to three books not titled the holy bible one to three all right let me start with this most encouraging book of last year Okay. Antagonists in the church. <laughs> On the one hand, like from the title, doesn't sound like it would be a, a very encouraging book. But uh, the author, and I, I forget his name, but he goes through and explains how sometimes opposition that you face in the, in the church comes from people who act in an antagonistic way, but they're not antagonists. That would be like those who, who have good intentions, they just go about things the wrong way. Yeah. And then you have people who are just like chronic troublemakers. Like if, if you satisfy them on this issue, they find another one. And so like their entire point is always just to create problems. So I'm antagonist in the church. Jesus loves the little children by Daniel Hyde, which was one of the most encouraging and warm treatments on infant baptism that i've read still a favorite i mm. haven't read it in probably 10 years yeah still a favorite and then aw tozer the attributes of god Ooh, there aren't many books there aren't many things just period that will bring a tear to my eye mm. that book mm. it's a two volume one but it's the same series his attributes of god brings tears to my eyes it's so warm yeah in just how he writes so who's the most impactful person in your life individual like still living that i know anyone, personally anyone who's the most impactful person in your life steve bradley tell me about steve he was my pastor in pittsburgh and really in a lot of ways still is i think he's the one that helped me to understand what it means to hold to like reform theology without being really ungracious and uncharitable. That's a nice way to put it. Um, great mentor. Yeah. Hmm. How do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as one who in spite of my own imperfections and in spite of my own sin, I want to be remembered as one who faithfully followed Christ mm. in my preaching, in my parenting, in my, uh, I don't know what the verb for it is, being a husband, mm -hmm. in my friendships. That's what I want to be remembered for. Last three questions. Okay. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Mm. 
you started off by saying uh, that I'm the first one who discovered Holy Smokes through the podcast. It's been on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So the podcast helped me particularly mm. as I was going through a time of isolation and really longing for a community that I thought I had lost. I think I've come to learn I hadn't actually lost it, but I was in such a dark place mm. that it felt that way. So in my mind, holy smokes, starting with the podcast, is a source of great encouragement in dark times. Mm. I have only been to um, two official like Holy Smokes gatherings, both in Colorado Springs. Yeah, I've been to the one at uh, Paul Felitas's house. Yeah, and I've been to the Hardrays, which I just recently went to. Yeah, as far as the gatherings as I have experienced them, I think Holy Smokes, the Holy Smokes community, embodies the community of faith that we're yeah. called to yeah the two that i've been to in each case even though i've had very particular like heavy things going on in my own life i've walked away from those really encouraged mm, that's beautiful and for any who have heard the multiple witness about paul's character and the kind of person he is Coming from someone who's not from Colorado Springs, who hasn't known Paul very long, I've seen him once, uh, that testimony is just completely true. He's such a great guy. He is. He is. So at his place, just sat down and just talked with people. I don't even remember what we talked about. Yeah. And then same thing at the hard race. I eventually got roped into throwing darts. I'm not very good. So. Yeah. Uh, whoever had me on their team got the short end of the stick. So, but it was a, it was a jolly old time, jolly old time. So, yeah, I would say those two things. the The podcast has been very special uh, to me, and so has the the gatherings that I've been able to make it to. Thank you. That's awesome. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. All right, I'm gonna go with. R.L. Dabney, who is a Southern Presbyterian minister during like antebellum South Civil War era. Yeah. The reason is what I've seen in his writings and in the biographies about him versus how he's often characterized today, they're like almost two completely different people. So just to chat with him about that, as well as to from one Southern man to another to get counsel as far as being a minister from the South. The others, what was that? The, the other two. The other two. Hmm. Can it be people that I've already had yeah, smokes with? Absolutely. I'm going to say Steve Bradley again. That one almost isn't fair because I still get to have a smoke with him on at least on a yearly basis, but it's always such a, a good time that it's worth doing again and again yeah. and again. 
And one last one. The Apostle Paul, particularly because of his pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus. Mm. I want to ask him, like, what led him to go and label man-made traditions that like, take precedence over the Word of God? He labels them as doctrines of demons. Mm. I want to ask him about that. Mm. What led you there? Unpack that a little bit more. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. All right, last question. We're meeting one year from today, and I got a bottle of your favorite scotch. What are we celebrating? One year from today, greater peace in the church. Like true peace, not superficial, not peace because everyone agrees with me. True unifying peace Mm. in spite of hardships in spite of persecutions and difficulties, true peace in the church. Caleb Allen, Denison, Kansas, pastor of that tiny town. It's great having you on, my man. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. May we see true peace. Yes, sir. Hey, everyone. I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.